This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're catching up with your elected officials in Washington while they're back in Colorado for the holiday break. Let's spend some time with Republican Ken Buck. His enormous district includes much of northern and eastern Colorado. He's a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, and he's written a book called Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. He spoke with Ryan Warner yesterday. Congressman, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. And we're going to get to your book in a moment, but I want to start right down in the swamp, as you refer to it, and what Congress is up to. Uh, when the recess ends. One of the big priorities for many Republicans in Congress is an overhaul of the tax code. Um, As that process gets underway, what's the biggest make or break element for you? Well, I'll tell you, the tax code should and probably will come after the health care bill. There has to be savings in the health care bill before we can figure out what the uh, reductions in tax rates will be, both for corporations and individuals. But I am studying right now the the border adjustment tax, and I think, uh, again, depending on how high that tax, uh, the border adjustment tax is, will really determine some of the uh, support or lack of support for the tax reform bill. Would you explain in layman's terms what the border adjustment tax is? Sure. It is a tax on products that come into the country, and it's different than tariffs, but most countries have uh, a tax system that taxes imports but doesn't tax exports and gives their manufacturers an advantage. And America has been playing on an unlevel playing field for decades now. And to try to level that playing field, Congress is considering a border adjustment tax, which would tax imports and and try to rebuild some of the, uh, the manufacturing in this country. Wouldn't that make cheap goods from abroad more expensive? especially on families that uh, rely on on cheap goods to, I don't know, stock their cupboards? So uh, not necessarily on food, but but you're absolutely right, on clothing and and other items. um, And that's the downside of the border adjustment tax. Uh, It would encourage domestic production of those items and discourage uh, importation of those items. There's really a trade-off. The lower uh, level wages, we expect to see an increase in those wages as a result of more manufacturing in this country. Uh, at the same time, there may be, and there probably will be, an increase in the cost of goods, even if they're manufactured in this country, uh, there may be an increase in the cost of goods. But you see so much of this interrelated. So this border adjustment tax, tax reform in general, the health care bill. Why don't we talk about the health care bill? So it had a rather high profile failure on its first go round in the House. What will be different the next time around? Well, I don't agree with your term failure. I, I don't think it failed. Uh, it, it is going through a process right now. It was set for a vote. It was pulled, not uh, the first time, um, and and it's not uncommon for bills to be pulled. It is going to continue to go through a process, and I think it will get stronger uh, before it is actually voted on uh, on the floor. So I think there will be uh, substantive changes to the bill. You you said uh, after the bill did not make it to the floor, you said that uh, you would have supported it in in the form that it uh, existed. But you've talked about savings there. How do you uh, save money without kicking people off of Medicaid, for instance? Or or maybe you don't. Um, Talk about that. Well, the the concept is that as the federal government passes this 
onto the states, there, there will be uh, block grants that go to the states. But taking out the, the federal bureaucracy from the program, allowing the states to uh, regulate the program in a more efficient and effective manner will save money. Uh, if there are able-bodied individuals uh, on Medicaid, the state can enact a, a work requirement for those individuals if they don't have child care responsibilities or other uh, responsibilities in the home. So the states have more flexibility and therefore more savings. A group of Republican business owners and farmers is lobbying now for comprehensive immigration reform. And these are folks who are meeting in your district. Um, what would you support in that arena? Well, you're not going to see comprehensive, in other words, one bill come out that takes care of this uh, entire mess that has been created by Republicans and Democrats over the last 30 years. What I anticipate is that we will see border security as an initial uh, step in the process. The second step is the worker programs, uh, a wide variety of worker programs. So as we secure the border and as we work on the, the guest worker and other programs, then I think you're going to see uh, Congress in, in the third phase address what to do with uh, folks who are in this country without proper documentation right now. Congressman Buck, uh, when you talk about border security, naturally the question of the wall comes up. Uh, this is the wall that uh, then-candidate Trump spoke a lot about on the campaign trail and that now President Trump would have to implement um, at costs of anywhere between 20 and $70 billion. The estimates vary widely for sure. Do you support building a wall? I support securing our southern border. And how, how much would you be willing to spend on something like that? I, I have no idea until I, I see the plan. But uh, it, it may be that we use satellite technology. It may be that we use physical structures. It may be that we increase personnel. Uh, whatever it takes to make sure that we have a southern border. And, and frankly, we need to do a better job on our northern border. We need to do a better job in our ports in this country. I do not hear in that an open embrace of a literal wall. Uh, what you hear uh, is a wall represents security. I am in favor of security, uh, and it, it, it can come in many different forms. What do you think of President Trump in general right now? Well, I uh, have been supportive of the president um, in his selection of a Coloradan for the United States Supreme Court. I think Neil Gorsuch will be a great justice on, on the Supreme Court. I have been supportive of the president in his uh, selection of his cabinet. I think it goes a long ways to draining the swamp. When you bring a secretary of education in who is from outside the system and will look at the Department of Education and determine what needs to be done to return power to the states uh, and how much money should we be spending in, it, in, in education at the federal level. And, and I think he's done the same thing with the EPA. He's done the same thing with the Office of Management and Budget and so many agencies. We're going to talk about your book, Drain the Swamp, in just a moment, but I want to ask one more uh, policy question, specifically foreign policy. On the campaign trail, uh, candidate Trump touted a more isolationist policy, um, but in the last two weeks, the president has taken the offense in Syria and Afghanistan. He has signaled a willingness to get involved in North Korea. Is that the right approach, do you think? Help me understand what you mean by the word isolationist. I, what I heard the president talk about was America first. I think that there was an impression, if you looked at uh, his stance on trade, if you looked at his attitude towards NATO, that he saw perhaps less engagement, not 
more. Um, Certainly his proposed cuts to diplomacy might reflect that and increased military spending. But in in general, um, to the the meat of that question, which is his stance in uh, Syria, Afghanistan, North Korea, do you support the avenue he's taking? I do. And I'll tell you, I I think it has been a a limited and message-sending role at this point. I think he has sent a message to North Korea, enough's enough. I think in Syria, what he did was he said, we will not tolerate a country gassing its own people and, and, and seeing these pictures of, of children uh, uh, was absolutely horrifying. I hope that when we get back from this break, the president uh, and the administration come to Congress and, and talk to Congress about a use of force in Syria. I think before President Obama sent uh, ground troops into Syria, he should have had that use of force. Uh, and I think it's a, a mistake by Congress not to have addressed that issue. Uh, your new book is called Drain the Swamp, which was also one of President Trump's rallying cries on the campaign trail. And um, the subtitle is How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Can you help me understand the contours of the swamp? What puts you out of the swamp and others in? And is the swamp a way actually just of talking about, I don't know, like your opponents? Well, I, I'm in the swamp. Uh, I, I'm not denying that at all. There, there are some people who are in the swamp and, and they think they're in a hot tub. Uh, and there are other people who are in the swamp and they realize that, that it is corrupt and dangerous and, and a lot of us want to reform it. And I have to, I have to say that uh, I, I have signed on to a number of, of bipartisan bills. I've had a number of uh, Democrats and Republicans sign on to my reform legislation. I've started a reformer caucus with a congresswoman from uh, New York. And we have a, a, a Noah's Ark rule that for every Republican that joins, we need to get a Democrat to join, or, and a Democrat joins, we need to get a Republican. I want to talk about another caucus. You're a part of the Freedom Caucus. This is a group of very conservative lawmakers. You're among them who wield a good deal of power on Capitol Hill these days. But there's no real published list of members, no place where the public can go to easily learn who you are, what you stand for. Uh, how is that not part of the swamp? Why not be more transparent? Well, I, you know, it, it is up to individual members to uh, acknowledge whether they are part of the, the Freedom Caucus or not. But there is no uh, requirement, and, and nor do I think there should be. I think that uh, a lot of frank conversations are very helpful to getting uh, things done in Washington, D.C. So when we talk about transparency, I think it's really important when we're talking about uh, finance and, and other areas. But the bylaws of, of any particular caucus, whether it is the Congressional Black Caucus or the, the Freedom Caucus, uh, I think those are uh, issues that, that stay within the caucus and, and that the members work on. Um, and the results of their activities, I think, are, are what's important. Finally, you write about Congress actively avoiding solving problems and it being an unpleasant place, infested with special interest, weighed down with fundraising requirements, as you've reflected here. Uh, if that's the case, why do you work to stay in an institution that um, it seems you, I don't know, do you fundamentally disrespect it? Did you ask me if I fundamentally disrespect it? Yeah. And once you answer that, why you are a part of it? Sure. Um, I I disrespect uh, the corruption. I disrespect the dysfunctional nature of the things that happen in Congress. I stay because if people like me leave, then the swamp uh, doesn't have that voice or voices that are trying to make the changes necessary to, to really, in my view, save this country. We can't survive with $20 trillion of debt and, and growing. 
Last year, we had $600 billion of deficit spending. We don't have a major war. We don't have a major recession. And, and that's just absolutely embarrassing. So uh, I, I don't intend to stay very long, but I do intend to stay and, and do my very best to reform the system. You say we don't have a major war. I think some might say that the war on terrorism that was declared many years ago is a, a form of a low-grade war in many different theaters. Well, you can you can make the same argument for the Cold War, but the, the fact is that the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the war in, in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq all had uh, price tags that we could associate with them. The war on terror is a, uh, a national security effort and an international security effort uh, with a much lower price tag and, and a much longer, frankly, time period to it, much much more uh, vague. But but you're right; it is costly to protect Americans from foreign terrorists and domestic terrorists. But it is not uh, what I consider a a well-defined war. And you see President Trump uh, proposing an increase in military spending. Uh, he has talked about major transportation and infrastructure spending as well. Talk to me about how that relates to debt. Well, it's concerning, frankly. I don't know how we're going to pay for uh, some of the things that uh, we're, we're talking about spending money on. Uh, one of the things that, that is clear to me is the military has to become more efficient. It isn't just a matter of throwing money at issues. We, we need to stay technologically ahead of China and, and Russia in particular, but we can't uh, outspend them to the degree we are and maintain an economy in this country that is going to be strong and be able to do that for the next 20 or 30 years. So uh, the infrastructure spending, while we have some infrastructure needs, uh, we're going to have to find ways to do that. And and I would suggest that the long-term effect of the tax reform package, when it does start producing more revenue, is the way to deal with the cost of the infrastructure needs in this country. Congressman Buck, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Republican Ken Buck represents Colorado's 4th Congressional District. His new book is called Drain the Swamp. His interview with Ryan Warner was recorded yesterday. At cprnews.org, you can catch up on other members of the Colorado delegation. Two years ago, a sexting scandal broke out at Canyon City High School. Administrations found hundreds of students had traded nude images of themselves and others. Some stored those pictures in special apps disguised as calculators. National media jumped on the story and couldn't help but notice the consequences the kids might face. Authorities are considering suspensions, expulsions, and some students may face felony criminal charges. A conviction would force them to register as a sex offender. That's from Good Morning America. The district attorney didn't bring felony child pornography charges in the case, but he could have. It's currently the only Colorado law that covers sexting. Now state legislators have moved forward on a bill to create a new, lower level of punishment. CPR Sam Brash joins us to explain the compromise. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Nathan. So yesterday, a House committee moved ahead with this sexting bill, but only after weeks of negotiation. What was the holdup? Yeah, so pretty much everyone agrees that Colorado laws are way out of date when it comes to sexting. A felony charge like sexual exploitation of a minor is meant to punish child pornographers, not frisky high schoolers armed with smartphones. But there's a split over how strict those new laws should be. Lawmakers were so 
divided, they actually ended up introducing two competing bills to address the issue. Uh, two bills. All right. What were the differences between them? So the, the main question was how the law should treat kids who send images voluntarily within a relationship. Uh, Jordan Monin is an 18-year-old activist from Longmont. She told lawmakers during a hearing last week that this happens all the time now. When you are in a high school relationship, it is becoming normal to send nude photos to your significant other. So one bill, sponsored by uh, Republican Representative Eulen Willett and Democratic Senator Ron DeFields, would have created a petty offense for a kid in that situation. The other protected minors who sex consensually from prosecution by laying out some parameters. They would have to send a message without coercion to just one other person. And if they did, a DA couldn't charge them with a crime. For the lawmakers who think sexting in a relationship should still be a crime, what's their reasoning? So they argue that like sexting, any sexting carries risk. Uh, Here's Representative Willett. Unlike sex between two people, limited in time, memory, scope, this creates a forever electronic perpetuation. So in other words, a photograph that a kid shared consensually could be used down the road to exploit or embarrass them. It could even be sold online. As Willett put it, it's the creation of a little bomb that could go off at any moment. Having a small crime in place is a way to deter minors from a dangerous behavior. I see. So what does the other side say? Why not use the law to try to discourage this behavior? Yeah, so take that same scenario Willett was alluding to. You got two kids, they're sexting within a relationship, and then there's a breakup and one of them tries to get back at their ex by posting those pictures online, maybe Mm -hmm. sharing them with friends. Some worry if the law treats any sexting as a crime, both the partner who took the pictures and the one who spreads them could be punished. And that could become a sort of victim blaming. Uh, Democratic Representative Peter Lee of Colorado Springs sponsored a bill that would only punish the abusive sectors. Sexters. Uh, his measure had the backing of groups that work with survivors of sexual assault. All right. So what compromise did lawmakers end up coming to here? So they agreed to sort of split the difference on this. They'll create a very low level charge for consensual sexting, just a up to $50 ticket or an education program in your school. And then there will be a range of increasingly serious charges for more malicious activities, like possessing an explicit image of a minor without that person's permission, or using that image to coerce or intimidate them. What about the felony sex offender charge? Is it completely off the table now in sexting cases? No, DAs can still use the charge against the minor. But if they do, prosecutors can't pile on these new lesser charges for sexting. They have to choose between one set of charges or this felony charge. That's so a juvenile would only risk landing on the sex offender registry for a truly egregious crime, like dealing in child pornography. So where does the bill go from here? Yeah, so it passed its first committee unanimously yesterday. It has a good chance through the rest of the process. Process, but lawmakers need to ask, fa- act fast. There's only three weeks left in the session. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Nathan. Sam Brash is a reporter here at CPR News covering state politics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been a year since a commuter rail line between Union Station and Denver International Airport opened. Despite delays and service interruptions, thousands of passengers ride it every day. Many use it to get to work at the airport, at restaurants, shops, car rental agencies. 
There are 35,000 jobs at DIA, but many aren't being filled. Some companies even offer signing bonuses now, and the airport has launched a website of all the job openings. I'm joined by Patrick Heck, DIA's chief commercial officer, and Dennis DeLongchamp, a longtime concessionaire. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Dennis, you're part owner of La Casita, uh, Elway's, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, Villa Pizza, Express Spa, and other concessions at DIA. How difficult is it right now to find employees? Well, I think the the problem that we have right now is there's so many jobs that are available out in Denver right now is that we are just having a saturation problem in Denver where they're not really coming to the airport because of the distance. So give us some examples. What are some of the openings at your businesses? A little bit of everything. We have anywhere from management positions available to assistant managers, to servers, to cooks, to hostesses, all the way to nail technicians and massage therapists. Because you own a lot of different business with varied... (laughs) Very much a different spectrum of of work. So Patrick, uh, what's behind the labor shortage? Well, I think what's behind it is mostly the growth in the region. So we're competing for the same workers that people downtown are competing for. And if you look at right now the the kind of thriving downtown we have and Mayor Hancock's quarter of opportunity, then you've got the airport on the other end. We are growing uh, a lot. Last year, our traffic was up 8%. So there is just a lot more need for workers at the airport. But we're competing for those same workers that the downtown businesses might need as well. So things are going very well for Denver, but you, you maybe not be seeing it uh, out at the airport. That seems interesting that things are booming there, but yet people aren't willing to come work there? Yeah, it's, it's a ways out there. I mean, we're not without our challenges. And you think about working at the airport, one of the things that's required when you work at the airport is a background check and fingerprinting and badging, things that at an airport that you wouldn't have to do if you worked at, say, Park Meadows Mall or the Cherry Creek Mall, for example. And so it makes life a little difficult, difficult for the employees, but also for the employers themselves as well uh, to attract them out there. What we see, though, is once people get out there, it's actually a very dynamic, very exciting place to work. And you see people liking the environment out there, but you have to convince them to come out there to begin with. To get out there, take the train and the security and things like that. So, right. so Dennis, how are you getting by with a shortage of employees? With, because airport numbers in terms of passenger traffic is up. Well, we have a lot of customers still we have to serve. Yeah. So the big thing that we do is people are getting a lot of overtime. So you have to pay for that, which, which costs a lot of money. Um, and people don't mind getting overtime right now. They like the extra money to spend. Yeah. Many jobs at DIA, particularly in retail, are fairly low paying, like 10 or $11 an hour. So it, it's just that maybe it's not worth it for job seekers. Is that right? That, that you can find work elsewhere in Denver? Yeah, it, it's, it's competitive. It's the marketplace. And so if you have to offer someone a certain amount of money to work, they can make that working somewhere else. You have to offer them something better to work at the airport if they perceive the airport as as being a less desirable place to work for whatever reason, whether it's distance or whatever it happens to be on their mind. Now, was this envisioned, uh, you know, this type of situation when the airport opened so far from where workers would be living? Yeah, I think it's always been a a discussion point of how are we going to attract workers out there? And if you've looked at what's happened to the development in Denver, housing and things are starting to move out that way. So there's actually a, a bigger population base living out closer to the airport. So over time, that has corrected itself somewhat. And and what we see with the opportunities that we have over the very long term for development in this region, you know, I think there'll be more people living out in the area, which will make it more attractive for them to work at the airport then. And that's the, the Aerotropolis that, that Mayor Hancock has been talking about, building houses out there in, in, in industry uh, along the, the, the rail line. Well, and I think the more important thing is, too, is what we do at the airport is we offer more per hour. We offer more benefits. We offer 401k plans, health insurance plans. Uh, we will pay for their bus passes um, that can get either whether it's a, the light rail that gets you to the A-line that comes into the airport um, or we'll pay for your parking out there. So, But I think more importantly is – being competitive with the street locations, we're more competitive than they are because we do pay more per hour. 
One, two, three dollars more sometimes. Now, is that the standard out there, Patrick, or that that job uh, businesses are offering these things that you may not find in Denver? Yeah, although I will say it, it varies. It just depends on kind of what the, what the job actually is. When you think about the jobs at the airport, there's airlines. Every time an airline adds a new flight, we announced Norwegian Airlines to London recently right. and Copa to, to Panama. Those airlines have to hire people. And so they have very different type of jobs than what, what dentists may have. And so it's really important that every time that something happens, United Airlines adds a flight to Columbia, Missouri or San Luis Obispo, it adds people out there and they have different types of jobs they need. So it really varies depending on, on who's adding the job. But growth in passengers means growth in every single job sector that we have at the airport. Now, Dennis, are these incentives working for you? Yeah, I think for the most part that they are. Um, I think that the unemployment rate is so low in Denver right now that there's just not enough people filling all the jobs in Denver in general, let alone just a DIA. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. My guests are Patrick Heck, DIA's chief commercial officer, and Dennis DeLongchamp, who owns several businesses at the airport. We're talking about a job shortage at DIA and how airport officials are dealing with it. I mentioned that that some of the businesses are offering these sinus bonus, signing bonuses to to attract employees, and you've mentioned other things. Uh, it, what else are are you doing to attract these these people to the airport? Well, I think what's what's most important for us is we really talk about how fun it is to work at the airport. And you mentioned you know, that, yeah, yeah. When you get to the airport, and you once you've gone through all of the the background checks that you need to go through, and you get through the train, and you get through security, and then you finally get to work. Once you get there, it's really dynamic. The amount of people that you meet, the people from around the world that you meet, and the conversations that you can have, it's a lot of fun. People really like to work there once they get through that process. What is the airport doing to address the problem? Is it really promoting the fact that come to the airport, it's going to be super fun, it's a unique place to work? We are. We just launched a website not long ago called jobs.flydenver.com. And the whole point of this website is that it's jobs at the airport. It's not specific to, say, Dennis's businesses or an airline's business. It's all the jobs that we can get people to post that are, that are happening at the airport. Because as Dennis said, once people get there and people understand what the airport's like, it's it's a fun environment. And, and there's a lot of different things you can actually do once you're out there. So having this central website that people can go to to find all the jobs that are available makes it easier for them, I think, to find the employment opportunities. And there's a lot of them because of all the things we mentioned with flights growing and with businesses growing yeah. and, and, and car rentals needing more people. There's just a lot of different types of things people can do. So this website puts all of the jobs available on, on one place. But before, were the individual companies doing that? They, they were, and they, they would have to go to their. They would all use their own own ways of posting I jobs, see. or they go through LinkedIn, or they go through whatever it is. They still do that, but this is now a central place for someone who knows. I would like to work at the airport because I think it sounds like a fun place. This is a place where they can go to see what the opportunities might be for them. Dennis, are you worried that you might not be able to grow your business because of this continued shortage? No, I think that for the most part, we have a we have a really good internal uh, staff right now that mm-hmm. will. They will take care of us as long as we're taking care of them. Now, when you were thinking about uh, creating businesses out at DIA, was there a thought that this could possibly be an issue, getting people to travel from Denver to the airport? It never was until the like again the unemployment rate went down. It never was because we always were more than competitive with what was happening in Denver. So now there's just a shortage of people, and that's why we're having the problem we have. We have a any given day we're about 400 people short in the concession program of the restaurants and and retail stores and service programs. Um, Back, you know, three, four years ago, it wasn't a problem because there was there was a lot of uh, people looking for work. There's just not as many people looking for work right now. So things are improving, yet that means there are jobs right. that are left being it's growing you know, pains. Yeah, right. <laughs> Patrick, DAA has plans to add more concessions in the coming years, and Mayor Hancock has promoted the concept of this aerotropolis, kind of an airport city with people living and working near the airport. Um, how is that possible when you can't fill the job openings you have today? 
Well, I think we have to look at the jobs that we have today. The, the economy is growing so fast right now, and the airport is growing so fast. We don't necessarily think that's going to happen. We're going to have 8% growth year after year after year. So at some point, th- this starts to get to a more normal pace of growth where you can keep up with it. We've had such a high pace of growth that it's hard to keep up. At some point, as this adds, more people will, will keep coming to the region. They'll keep working, and we'll be growing at a, at a much more manageable pace. Hopefully, we'll keep growing as fast as we've been for as long as we possibly can. But at some point, that will, we'll, we'll have to kind of go to a manageable pace. Is it fair to say you're hoping for the economy to cool down? <laughs> I'm not hoping for that at all. <laughs> I am hoping for it to keep going gangbusters. This is a great problem to have. I should, should, should say that. We are very happy that we're growing as fast as we are, but I don't think over the long term that will be sustainable. And eventually that this will, will work itself out. What about attracting new businesses to the airport uh, if hiring continues to be a problem? Either one. I, I think... I think we can still attract businesses because there's still a very good opportunity. Dennis can tell you about his own story, which I think would be good for him to say, but there's done right and done well, and it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of opportunity at the airport for someone to to grow and and build a a very, very um, good business. Well, I think that there's also it's it's knowledge really. It's really understanding and getting all the people that are out there to understand that there are jobs available. It's such a well kept secret out there that hey, I can actually work at the airport if we get the word out. Things like jobs, uh, jobsflydenver.com, or programs like this, or job fairs, or things that we're looking at right now and working with uh, Global Communications and help them promote Denver. That's the type of thing that gets more people to understand that we can come out there. I think there's plenty of people to work out there. I just don't think everybody knows about it right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Patrick Heck is DIA's chief commercial officer. Dennis DeLongchamp is a longtime concessionaire at the airport. Coming up, a Colorado-based company is making drinkable sunscreen. You heard that right. But an attorney general in another state is calling foul. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Iowa Attorney General is suing a Denver-based company that makes drinkable sunscreen. The state argues it's not only phony, but dangerous for consumers. The creator says it's possibly SPF 30. Caitlin Hendy has been reporting on the product and the lawsuit for the Denver Business Journal. Welcome. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, here we go. This has been this. What the heck is drinkable sunscreen and how is it supposed to work? So drinkable sunscreen is uh, comes in a little bottle. You spray it in your mouth. Um, its creators say that it works by manipulating the radio waves inside the product. And um, basically inside the product, which is water, just water that they use to and then and then you drink the water and then it interacts with the um, natural water that's in your body to supposedly block UV rays. So what does this look like? Is it really just water? It's just a bottle of water. Yep. It's a a small bottle, about 100 milliliters, and yeah, water. Why did the state of Iowa decide to take up this issue? That's a good question. Um, Ben Johnson, he is the uh, MD, the doctor who founded Osmosis Skin Care, which is the Colorado company that makes it. And he says um, that he doesn't understand why they uh, why they targeted him because he's only sold, according to him, 35 bottles in Iowa. Um, however, the Iowa State Attorney General says that uh, they just don't want a product that could be considered that they say could be dangerous to consumers in their state. Uh, This product goes for around 30 bucks a bottle. Uh, What exactly does the Iowa lawsuit allege? 
The Iowa lawsuit alleges that it makes claims that um, have not been scientifically proven, um, that there's no efficacy in the product itself and that it does not work, um, and uh, there's no science behind it working, and they are afraid that consumers may not understand that it's a marketing claim, not necessarily a claim backed by the FDA, and they don't want it sold there, pretty much. You've connected, like you said, with Ben Johnson, the founder of Osmosis Skin Care, which is based in Evergreen. Uh, He talks about this new frontier of medicine and things like that. Is that what he's saying, that this is just too new to really be uh, studied, I guess? That's exactly what he claims. He claims that he is on the cusp of a new frontier in ener- in medicine called energy medicine that looks more at how the body's natural energies interact with other energies to create medicine. And he says that he's not surprised that he's getting blowback because it's something that, you know, most people don't understand. It's not something they teach in med school, but it's something that he believes in strongly and he stands behind his products. So does the company have data that they can show that this product works? They do have a couple studies. The first study um, was done in 2014. In August of 2014 is when the results came out. And basically they uh, did a clinical trial with 24 um, uh, people. 16 of those 24 people did not get burned. And he says that 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 proves it. Um, They also did another study with a New York-based research company in 2016. Uh, The results of that one have not come out, but Ben Johnson again says that they will show that people did not get burned. However, the Iowa State Attorney General is calling into question how those studies were conducted. Because they were hired by the company, is that correct, the, the, the researchers? Right. Uh, ben Johnson hired one, the first company in 2014, um, which was Facial Beauty and by MD is the name of the company. And uh, the allegations that the Iowa State Jur- Attorney General is making is that those um, that that company was given product, five thousand dollars worth of product to do the study and that a lot of the study participants were friends and family of that company. So they're calling into question whether or not it was a legitimate study. Have you spoken with any scientists about whether this idea of a sunscreen that you can drink is an actual possibility? I have. I've spoken with a few different experts, and um, all through all of them have said the same, that they don't have any scientific framework to base around why it would work. Um, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, for example, their director said that he uh, did not see that it would work, and although he loves the idea of it, um, it's not something that would work. Also, same same from the... the uh, dermatology um, organization who said that they don't they don't see why it would work. So the, so the short answer is no. Right. The, the product directions do say if there's extended outdoor exercise in the sun while using the product that using an alternate sun protection is warranted. How easy is it for products like this with with maybe unproven science to, to get to the market? That that's a good point. Um, one of the experts that I spoke with said that the the problem with this product is it's not against not subjected to FDA. So it's something that because it's taken orally, it's some it's something that its makers market as protecting of UV rays. But most people, the average consumer, doesn't understand what UV rays even are necessarily, um, and definitely doesn't understand how that the, they're they're impacted by sunscreen or an oral product. So. Uh, very impacted by the marketing of this, and that's a concern for the Iowa State, Adjourner, uh, Iowa State Attorney General that he outlined in his suit. 
What will happen if Iowa wins this lawsuit? Uh, then uh, it, there'll be an injunction against osmosis, um, barring them from selling any of their products, which also include a mosquito repellent and a UV tan neutralizer, a UV neutralizer that includes tanning um, in their state. So they won't be able to sell it. Now, those aren't drinkable or, 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 or they are drinkable? Both or? of them are drinkable, drinkable. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Caitlin Hendy is a reporter for the Denver Business Journal, and we've been talking about a lawsuit targeting a drinkable sunscreen product that comes from a Colorado company. At just four years old, Dawson Newby knew he wanted to grow up to do this. He wanted to be a pro dirt bike racer. Newby grew up in Eaton, Colorado, just north of Greeley. He's 19 now, and he's back in Colorado this week doing just that. He's competing in the 14-round Amsoil Arena Cross Battle at the Denver Coliseum. Dawson, welcome. Hey, I appreciate it. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah. Motocross is dirt bike racing held on off-road circuits, right? Kind of the X Games. Think about that, right? But you're here in Denver doing arena cross. How would you describe that sport and what makes it different than motocross? Um, Amsoil arena cross is motocross more intense. You put 16 guys on the gate all wanting to win, all competitive on a short, tight track. And it's a lot of fun, really intense. Uh, It's great racing. And so it's indoors, and it's probably, I'm assuming, extremely loud. Uh, yeah, it, it gets kind of loud, but uh, it's a great event, great great family fun. I, is it a combat sport? Uh, <laughs> there's contact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's contact. Yeah, there's definitely contact there. Now, I want to go back, way back to when you were three years old. Uh, you got your first dirt bike at that age, and I understand you had to earn the bike. How'd you uh, do that? Yeah, I, I wanted a dirt bike. My dad owned a construction company, and he was like, dude, if you want a dirt bike, you're going to have to work and earn a little bit of it. And uh, the Lord Lord blessed us and blessed me. I was able to work for my dad all summer, just sweeped up on the job site, picked up stray nails. Uh, At three years old? Yeah, trying to stay out of the way, kind of, and earned a little bit of money and got my first dirt bike. And the Lord has just blessed me with the talent and the skills to be able to go out there and, and race and glorify him. What do you remember about the first time you rode that bike? Uh, I just remember I got on it, and from the very beginning, I was super excited, hit the throttle, pinned it all, all the way through the field, hit the brakes, turned around, came back to my dad and was like, I love it. It's awesome. And, and what was his thought? His thought was like, holy cow, what what <laughs> what just happened? But he let you do it. Yeah, he yeah. let me do it. How did you get exposed to racing dirt bikes? Uh, honestly, we owned a boat and my dad worked construction and my mom worked a little bit and I just wanted a dirt bike. After about a year of riding, I turned four years old and there was a local local supercross race just at Island Grove over in Greeley. Mm-hmm. And we entered the race. I, I raced my first race, did pretty well, had a ton of fun. And we decided that's what we wanted to start doing. How old were you then? I was four years old. Four years old. Now, yes, is sir. that is that common to have such a young person? A lot of a lot of the pros nowadays. You talk to most of them, and just about eighty percent of the of the racing population started before the age of five. Yes, sir. So, what about that experience racing at that age made you determined to do this as a profession? I mean, you love it, but you turn that love into actual work. Yeah. So. We continued to race as I grew up, and at seven years old, I met a guy named Kevin Johnson. He was an X Games gold medalist in speed and style, and he raced for Team Faith Fly Racing, and he actually 
did a lot of mentoring kind of as I grew up and I love to talk with that guy and watch him race, watch him ride. And he just set a great example for me, um, with his faith and also with his racing and proved with team faith, we can show the love of Jesus Christ and also, uh, race and, and race the circuit. Now, religion, it obviously seems as very important to you. Um, how has that been, um, uh, with that in terms of, you know, winning races and, and going through the, through the motions, they're having that faith with you. Uh, yes, sir. It's very important to me. And that's my number one thing is to just use racing as a platform to spread my faith and spread the love of Jesus. And so it's, it's really helped me as I've grown and as I've matured to fall back on my faith and always know that it's there. And, um, that's the number one reason I'm out there. And then racing, it, it all just combines and it works perfect, man. I'm thinking of a lot of uh, younger athletes out there, maybe in a, in a, you know skiing and snowboarding and in skateboarding, that are so much on social media now that they're gaining this um, these 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 followers. Are, are you doing something similar in that sense? Um, we do a little bit. I try to stay off of a ton of social media my myself personally because you can receive kind of um, bad influence from things like that. But then also the team and I do have a couple personal accounts. We do, we do keep up with sponsors and the race series and things. And we do have followers. I think our, our team Facebook has quite a few followers. And so we do have social media and things like that. But, but you're kind of staying off it because you, you kind of want to keep that purity of your, your mind focused a little on bit again. and try and keep focused on racing, racing a lot of, a lot of this sport, um, is all about social media and that's great. And that's the way the world is headed is technology, but there's also a lot of bad influence that can come from it or, um, things that can influence your confidence by, by way of other people commenting or, or talking about you or the race the past weekend. So, yeah. Uh, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Dawson Newby, a pro dirt bike racer. He's a native of Eaton, Colorado, and competes this weekend in the Amsoil Arena Cross event at the Denver Coliseum. Tell us about your routine. What's what's training like? You just go bike riding for hours at a time? Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> so we we travel quite a few places to ride when Colorado doesn't have good weather. I go to Southern California, North Carolina, and a typical week we wake up in the morning, eat breakfast. Uh, go and ride for three or four hours, put in a ton of laps, hard laps, sprint laps, um, practice on the track, gym training, cycling, mountain biking, swimming, whatever we can do to cross train to get ready for the next event. Now, are there, I know there's a lot of, there's, there's jumping involved and things like that. I mean, how, how was that when you first started to make those major jumps on a track? At first it, it's a little nerve wracking and you look at a jump and you're like, man, I don't know if I can make that at that age, uh, you have a little bit of lack of confidence cause you've never done it before. But as you start growing up and you get faster, you hit more jumps, you hit bigger jumps and pretty soon you get that confidence and you know, just by looking at it about how fast you have to hit it, how hard you have to hit it, the length of the jump. And so it gets a lot easier the faster you get. Is it all just skill or is it, you have to have that confidence too, I'm assuming. You have to have a ton of confidence. I think probably at least 90% of the sport is all mental. And really, so you have to have confidence. You have to know you have the ability and, uh, talent does, does come into play. Do you have any pre-race rituals that you do? Uh, I pray, I pray to the Lord. I do a little bit of stretching and, um, just kind of loosen up a little bit. 
is, is there weightlifting and training involved in that as well to keep yourself physically fit? Or? Uh, for training during yeah. the week, we do really lightweight, t- uh, heavy reps, you know, things like that just to stay physically fit, but not a whole lot of heavy lifting. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier that arena cross can get really, really intense. It, it's really close quarters during the, the 15 lap races. Uh, this is essentially kind of a contact sport, like you said, and people have been seriously injured, right? Uh, yeah, there's injuries. There's injuries, but we, like I say, train year round to try and prevent those as best we can. Would you consider yourself then an adrenaline junkie? Uh, I think so. After in the off season, you don't race a while and you don't see that gate drop. You don't get that adrenaline going. You start to kind of crave it and, and miss it and get a little anxious. You're 19 now. Uh, yes, sir. you're hoping this career goes... Yeah, as far as far as it can go, yes, sir. Now, I, you know, I, very different than than you know dirt bike rigs, but in like you know ballerinas and things, they retire relatively early. Would you retire relatively early? Because yeah, I think the average age, if your career is going very well, as as a lot of guys have, um, the average age is probably around thirty years old to retire. Thanks so much for being here. I yeah, appreciate I appreciate it. it. Thank you. Pro dirt bike racer Dawson Newby. He's a native of Eaton, Colorado, and competes this weekend at the Amsoil Arena Cross event at the Denver Coliseum. Finally today, Gasoline Lollipops was voted Best Country Band in Colorado by Westward Readers last year. Resurrection is the title of the Boulder Band's latest album. It's the third and final installment in their Lucky 7 trilogy, which chronicles singer Clay Rose's battle with drug and alcohol addiction. Resurrection is a hopeful ending to the trilogy, with Rose embracing sobriety and his role as a father. Here's a song written out of the dark experiences of Rose's struggle. This is Drink My Fill. It's hard making friends when nobody's there. Just a sidewalk full of mirrors and vacant stairs It's hard to share my thoughts when nobody cares Except the creepy psychotherapists selling their wares It's hard Above all this noise It's hard to keep filling the void With drugs and toys But right now There ain't nothing I wouldn't sell For just one night I could dim the lights of hell And every drop I ever spilled And I'd walk right back to that bar And drink my fill Boulder County, Boulder Country Rock Band, rather, Gasoline Lollipops with Drink My Fill. 
Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Our producers are Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Stephanie Wolf, and David Hill. Audio engineers Matt Hers and Michael Hughes. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.